Welcome to the Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Ben Yenowitz and Zach Smarin. Today, we are going to continue our discussion of the Caucasus. Last time, we spoke to two visitors of the region, but today we will be speaking to someone with deep familial roots in it. We will be speaking to Yana Naftalieva, the president of the World Union of Jewish Students, whose family comes from the Red Village, but who grew up in Moscow. This intro is a little bit longer than the other ones that we usually do for a few reasons. Partially, this conversation is a little bit shorter. We have people that we want to introduce, and we also have some experiences to share from Hillel. If you want to go directly to the conversation with Yana, check the description. There'll be a timestamp over there. Since we started this podcast, the Jewish Diasporist was really a pet project with me and Ben. But with the growth that we've seen, we have the desire to take this to the next level. For that, we needed more people to come and join us in this endeavor. And we are very, very happy to announce some people that are joining the permanent team of the podcast for now. And we would like to introduce them to you. Hey, everyone. My name is Alana Green. Um, I, I use they, them pronouns. I'm really excited to be a part of the Jewish Diasporas podcast. I know uh, the Yanowitz twins, twin Z, who will introduce the other one in a minute, from my work at Camp Newman. And I'm just a leftist, really involved and caring about the Jewish future. So I'm excited to be on this podcast and be working in more of a behind the scenes social media type stuff. So like and subscribe and engage and bring our numbers up, you know? So yay. And hi, everyone. I'm Jordan Yanowitz, twin brother of Ben Yanowitz, longtime host of this show. And I am here to help bring uh, some extra perspectives, help with some of the editing, and to really ground our exploration of Jewish life in diaspora within the human experience. I'm an ecologist, as you might have heard in the episode on the ecology of love, and I'm really here to help bring another voice that comes from a different perspective to this podcast and help make this thing effective. And I'm really happy to be here. And we're so happy to have both of you here, Alana and Jordan, of course, Zach. It's really been such a pleasure to be able to work with you guys. And I'm really excited to see where this will go in the next few months, years, who knows. So in the conversation that will follow this, we talked a lot about Yana's familial history, but we didn't go in as much depth on the World Union of Jewish Students. The World Union of Jewish Students is a really interesting organization that actually does not have an American branch, at least not a full-fledged American branch. So for many listeners who are in the U.S., you may not really even know anything about this organization. But if you listen to episode 2 or 13 and 14, we've talked about the UJS, the British Union of Jewish Students, and the European Union of Jewish Students. Both of these are affiliated to the World Union of Jewish Students, but are very different from a similar organization we have in the U.S., which is Hillel. It's about 100 years old. The first president was one Albert Einstein, I am just seeing that Hillel was actually a year older than the World Union of Jewish Students. But what made the World Union of Jewish Students unique and different is that the World Union of Jewish Students, unlike Hillel, which was founded in 1923, is a at least ostensibly democratically organized student organization. So as we talked about in regard to UJS and the European Union of Jewish Students, they have conferences where either individuals or delegates vote on behalf of policy that are proposed by students, and that sets the policy of the organization, which is something that we don't have or see in Hillel, which is unfortunate. And we love democracy. When the World Union of Jewish Students was founded in 1924, they were largely trying to understand how anti-Semitism was evolving and growing in that moment, and to be able to have a space for Jewish students from across Europe mostly, to be able to come together and talk about this. And you had early president Albert Einstein really helped make this an institution that was the front edge of Jewish student organizing. And it actually preceded the World Jewish Congress by 12 years, which was a similar organization, but not just students. And when it was originally founded, it was arguably diasporist. It was designed, a lot of what it was doing was creating space for Jewish students in Eastern Europe to be able to try to support them coming to places where anti-Semitism wasn't as much of a real threat in the day-to-day. But in more recent years, it has actually been a lot more Zionist in its international outlook. Um, One of the early presidents was David Ben-Gurion, one of the early 
vice presidents was Chaim Weizmann. It's been very much focused on connecting Jews to Israel. And in 2017, the majority of funding for the organization comes from the Jewish National Fund and the World Zionist Organization. And about 300,000 of the 800,000 students represented belong to the National Union of Israeli Students. That said, it plays a very important role by allowing Jewish students to be able to actually have a democratic space to organize as Jewish students. And in the 1960s, it served as a major venue for radical Jewish student politics. And we do believe it still can. We don't have an American equivalent, but it does have the potential to be a space that can let us really have critical discussions about the political and cultural nature of our communities and to be able to have students actually engage and help create the communities to look like they want them to look like. And that's different from Hillel. Hillel is much more top-down. And I know Jordan and Alana, you both have experience organizing Hillel. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the significance of that lack of democracy is within that organization from your experience. Okay, so I was very involved in the Oregon Hillel Foundation, which is kind of a joint Hillel in between the Oregon State University Hillel and also the University of Oregon Hillel. So just by nature of uh, us doing joint events a lot, I was really familiar with the Oregon State University's Jewish population as well, if they were involved in Hillel. Um, I was the student board president my senior year at Oregon, which was uh, academic year 2017 to 2018. And it was definitely an interesting time to be a Jewish student leader on campus. It was fresh out of the 2016 election. I think people were really uh, just wanting to do something with their minority status. And I think a lot of Jews on campus felt very um, seen by Hillel and just like uplifted throughout their time going to school at Oregon, at least that I've seen. So I also did a lot of work with the cultural board. I was essentially the head of six or seven other Jews who were on the programming board. We planned events. We did general student outreach, donation drives, things of that nature. It was difficult because Hillel was definitely a place for Jewish students at Oregon. I remember uh, my director would always be tabling at introduction, which was like the intro to freshman year. So it was like, okay, well, you know, here's this Jewish student table. And um, here's this really cool guy who's amazing. Hi, Andy, shout out if you're listening. I would love to talk to you about this episode. It was really involved, but also like University of Oregon has like 50,000 people attending it in some way, shape or form. I don't know the numbers now, but at least if I was there, it was also very difficult to organize across the campus just with knowing how many people there were versus how many Jews versus how many of those Jews at Oregon were walking through our doors. So it was a lot of, I'm here, hello, what's up everybody? And then there would be like random Jews who of course would, would show up on high holidays and I would not know who they were. So it was a great experience and also not without plenty of conflict, which I will go into, but I kind of want to hear what uh, Jordan's involvement was. Yeah, thanks for passing that to me, Alana. I attended UCLA, which unless I'm mistaken, is actually the largest and maybe the best funded Hillel in the United States. This is another really large school, around 40,000 people with a pretty large Jewish population. And similar to Alana, Hillel has a presence at every single new student orientation. It's really a place that tries to get every Jewish student in, on campus involved. They also have their own activities fairs with lots of these internal Hillel clubs. And I actually was one of the directors of one of these clubs. It was called Chai on Life, a Jewish alternative Shabbat nature-oriented club. We would go on hikes lead camping trips and all sorts of different outdoor activities. And the purpose of that was to create Jewish community. I think that's really the overarching goal of Wujis, of Hillel, but at the same time, there's lots of other goals that get shoehorned into Jewish student life, especially in Hillel, where it comes from the top down. My experience with Hillel was pretty common to Jewish students at UCLA going to a few Shabbats. I went to a first year student retreat. And I think only really in 2021, which was three years into my UCLA experience, did I start becoming disillusioned with Hillel. And that's because there was a war in Gaza that happened in 2021. 
And the UCLA student government put out a resolution condemning Israel for their actions. And it did not mention any actions that any Palestinians might have taken. And the UCLA Hillel, from the top down, was vehemently supporting the idea that this resolution was inherently anti-Semitic. And I know a handful of Jewish students, some of which were on boards of Hillel at the time, and really became disillusioned, alienated from that community. It became really difficult to voice our opinions within Hillel, within student government, as Hillel tried to put itself out there as the only voice of Jewish students on campus. They had presidents of Hillel, two of which were my roommates at the time, go to the student town halls that did this, and I have some friends who are on one side, and I have some friends who are on the other side, and it made it really difficult to talk about these things with uh, people whose views I didn't agree with so much. And out of this, uh, I helped form an organization called the Jewish Student Union, the JSU. It was a very short-term organization, but we just really wanted to create a space that was non-Zionist. We weren't explicitly anti-Zionist. We weren't explicitly a liberation activist organization. It was just a space that was outside of Hillel and was able to advocate for justice for all people rather than trying to take a vehemently Zionist position. And we held a Passover Seder with like around 40 people that year, which was really beautiful. And it was really compelling and moving to see that there is a Jewish community that has been alienated from Hillel. And that's really my experience with Hillel, recognizing that this is a fundamentally top-down, funded, and also managed organization. They say they have a lot of student leaders, but those student leaders are getting trained to have one particular perspective, and deviation from that is really not going to be welcomed within those spaces. Alana, does that resonate with your experience at Hillel in Oregon? Yeah, I would definitely say it resonates. For me, it was really interesting because I, even before I was on student uh, leadership board. I was just very involved in Hillel in general. Most of the time, the most people we saw come through the doors were like on Shabbat services and I was a song leader. So I naturally kind of just led services every week and pretty much knew the faces of people who were in Shabbat services. So yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting because, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. I went on birthright in 2016. I was really, really excited at the time to um, go to Israel. I had never been, but also it was based off of the knowledge that I had gained from going to Zionist Jewish summer camps throughout my whole childhood by no fault of anyone. You know, I had a great time at summer camp. I made some of the best friends of my life. And also it's been such an interesting thing to reflect on how such a wonderful place can also be the source of so much when I started reading more about leftist politics and getting really involved with abortion rights access in Eugene and in general anti-cop protests in Eugene, I was really involved in Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA. They had a, a student organization on campus that was formerly kind of UO Students for Bernie. And then inevitably when that campaign ended, it was just a whole lot of leftists who were trying to still do activist work in the Eugene area. So I ended up just like in that student group while also being on Hillel board at the same time. And those two interactions were just absolutely crazy because on one hand, I had a whole bunch of people in DSA meetings who the second they found out I was Jewish assumed I was Zionist. I didn't even have the words for why that assumption could have been problematic at the time because I was still unlearning my own internalized Zionist politics, right? But also there were Jews who were in that room with me who were not necessarily in involved in Hillel, but were in DSA, were some other type of marginalized person who was just like trying to get involved in leftist causes. So it was interesting because I had the experience of going on birthright, coming back from that, feeling insane by what I saw. And also when I was the student board president, it was like I was literally the student face of Hillel. And then suddenly there was a BDS resolution introduced by the ASUO, the Associated of University of Oregon Students. And at the time, it's it's really similar, Jordan, like to what you were saying about how there were a lot of Jewish student leaders who were suddenly expected to speak out to condemn BDS. You know, what does this remind us of? All these calls of like, oh, you got to condemn Hamas. You got to condemn all of the atrocities. And it's just like, okay, I am totally understanding 
you know, Hillel at Oregon my senior year was vandalized. Literally people put free Palestine on the side of the building. And I remember sitting there looking at that graffiti outside being like, I don't necessarily feel safe, but not for the clutching pearls. I don't feel safe type of a way. I don't feel safe in the sense that I think we are having two different conversations in the wrong place, if that makes sense. And, you know, I remember specifically having a, a conversation after that graffiti happened, which was literally the same week as the BDS res resolution was supposed to be passed um, with my hello director. And I was just like, I don't really understand why they are blaming all Jews for these horrible things that are happening as a direct result of the Israeli government, as a direct result of the Israeli occupation, blah, 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 blah. And I remember so clearly the look on my Halal director's face. And he looked at me and he was like, Alana, there are people who have been in my office in the past couple of days who have seen you speak out in support of BDS and tell me that I should kick you off of student board. And I'm not going to do that because I believe that that is wrong, first of all, but it's also completely disingenuous to me and your relationship. I believe you're a strong student leader. Why would I kick you off of board anyway? We can disagree on politics and I still think you bring a great deal to Hillel as the president. And I bring this story up because at the same time, he can have that conversation with me, uplift me. But yeah, I'm sitting here feeling like, well, if we have to have this conversation in the first place, am I necessarily being fully supported here? I don't actually think so. So I don't know. I kept going to these hearings about the BDS resolution, which inevitably was not passed because at the time, University of Oregon president was named Michael Schill, and he was known around Oregon as just like a Zionist guy, like always would be at general Eugene temple meetings and things like that. Like he knew me. And like, I remember making eye contact with the president like at this, it was like exactly like you just talked about Jordan. It was like, I'd see people who I knew at Shabbat services being like, I stand with Israel. Why would you ever say anything against Israel? Why would you ever want to pass a BDS resolution? And then it's just like people like me who are actually could tell you what BDS stands for. Like, do you, do you know? It's just like a difference between fear of what we don't actually understand and like just, well, what are we trying to fight for here? And meanwhile, all of my friends were seniors and I'm inevitably checked out and they're like, why do we care so much about this resolution, blah, blah, blah. When it's like, okay, well, we could actually have an impact by divesting from whichever corporation i apologize i don't know which ones we were actually trying to divest from but i do know that U of O still has plenty of those contracts up i'm pretty sure they have a raytheon contract so there's that i bring all of this to light just for context because i think that when we think about who has the power it's always you know where the money decisions are being made and a big part of my job as a student board president was I would sit at the governing board meetings and I would be the only student representative at these meetings and it would just be a whole lot of people who genuinely cared about the future of the Jewish education and just the Jewish life on campus at Oregon and some of the people on that board were former students but also a lot of people were shared roles with the governing board at Temple Beth Israel which is another reform shul in Eugene. I actually, they, they might be reconstructionist. I apologize. I don't know. But regardless, there are places that I definitely felt like I was supposed to say a certain type of thing. I definitely think it's ironic that on Hillel International's website at the bottom, it says for every Jew, because the second that you start to have an experience outside of what Hillel envisions Jewish life on campus, you know, since that's their scope to be, it's suddenly not for you anymore. And I think that that's just going to be an interesting precursor to hear about what the WUJS could look like. A little point that I want to just add there is that there is another country that doesn't have a national Jewish student union and in which any sort of Jewish student or youth communal life is dominated by Hillel. And that is uh, Poland, actually. Shout out to all my friends in the Krakow and Warsaw Hillels, uh, Boaje and Clementina. Hello. And I think that these are obviously radically different conditions. And I think, you know, in situations where it's a struggle for resources, it's a struggle to be able to create that kind of communal environment, it is a good job. Oh, of course, a shout out also to Maria Hershova, who was one of our first guests in episode four. Who we met at the Krakow Hillel. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it's a struggle for resources, but it's also, I've mentioned this point to them before about the question of democracy, the question of decision making. And I think it's important. I think that if we're thinking about vibrant Jewish communities around the world, then those communities need to be democratic, not just at the student level, but in adult life as well, so to speak. We should leave it at that. We should move on to the interview. But it's certainly worth talking more about Hillel in the future. And I think there's a lot of points that we haven't discussed here. The Open Hillel campaign was an interesting initiative about 10 years ago. It's not so much a thing anymore, but certainly uh, worth considering. The societies we live in are organized in very top-down ways. This means that most people struggle to really conceive of what real democracy should feel like, even in liberal democratic states. Student politics have particular significance because they educate the next generation in how one does politics. While the democratic processes of Wujis and its affiliated unions may be imperfect, they offer a vital avenue to empower individuals and collectives to pursue change within the institutions which shape their lives. As socialists, we strive to help create a deeply democratic society, which takes work institutionally and interpersonally to realize. As diasporists, we are committed to the democratization of Jewish life wherever it exists. Let's move on and give the voice over to Yana. Yana, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a bit of a difficult time, uh, but it's nevertheless great that you found a little bit to share your thoughts on a subject that we're very interested in. We've spoken already to Bruno and Emma, two Czech Jewish students that have visited Azerbaijan recently. They've been to the Red Village, they've been to Baku. They've given us their thoughts and so we already know a little bit and we've explained certain parts of this subject, certain areas of this subject, but we also, we would also like to have the perspective of a more local person. So would you like to say us, would you like to tell us maybe just a little bit about yourself? What is your connection to the Red Village and generally what do you, what, what are you occupied with these days? Yeah, thank you very much guys for inviting me. Uh, my name is uh, Jana. And I'm the president of the World Union of Jewish Students. Um, I've also served as the board member of the European Union of Jewish Students. And basically, I'm very, very involved with the world of the Jewish student activism. Um, a small disclaimer that I'm not really local uh, in term when we speak about Azerbaijan. Um, my family comes from there. Uh, my family is coming from Baku and the Red Village even though I've never been there. Uh, so it is my heritage. It, of course, um, played a very um, important role in my life because I was growing up in Moscow and mountain Jews in Moscow are very different from Russian Ashkenazi Jews. Um, everybody knows it. Um, so yeah, this is uh, a bit about myself. If you can, uh, and as much as you want, could you tell us a little bit about the history of your family? Um, so my family is Jewish till they, I, it's hard to say till what generation, but I, I can say to, till the fifth generation and I won't be lying most likely. I originally, they're coming from Iran, uh, but from Iran, not in the 20th century, even in the 20th, um, in the twenties of 20th century, um, my great great granddad, uh, who was um, trading uh, goods from Iran to Azerbaijan, went uh, from Iran to Azerbaijan just for his normal deal, and the Soviet Union was formed and the border was closed, so he he didn't have Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever to connect to his family, so he just um, he stayed in Azerbaijan. And back then, Red Village uh, already existed in Azerbaijan. It uh, already has been a place where Jews lived, only Jews lived there. Um, so he just went there and he was from Iran. So he was speaking Farsi, the same Farsi. It's, it's an old Farsi. It's not the Farsi that is spoken now in Iran. Uh, so the language was the same. 
to the to the language of mountain Jews. Um, so he stayed, and that's how kind of my family appeared. That's on my dad's side. All I know that my mom's family was living in Baku for a long time. That's incredibly interesting because often for me, when I think about like Jewish heritage, it really is almost like this world heritage because it's so hard to really think about our longer history, whether it's like five, ten generations back, because like I know where my great grandparents came from. But can I say that they were there for hundreds or thousands of years? No, not at all. So it's very interesting that you have that sort of history that you know of family moving from Iran to Azerbaijan and then kind of being stuck there because of political boundaries that get established in those moments and then being able to find Jewish community nevertheless and therefore being able to settle down and be able to create a new life as a Jew. Um, was that side of your family uh, Persian Jews then? Yeah, they, they were Persian Jews. I don't know much about them, though, um, just because it really was like far, far away. And that's just like a teeny, tiny piece of history that my family could get out. Like that's that's the only thing that my dad actually knows about his part of the family. Um, as you mentioned, it is hard <laughs> to get these facts out. Yeah. And it's really beautiful, though, that we're able to kind of in embrace that history and that heritage and carry it forward and really wrestle with it and the traditions that our ancestors bring and that we seek to carry forward within the current moment. So you said that you've never been to the Red Village in person? No, I've never been to Azerbaijan in person. I had few opportunities to do this and life just did not work out. But I know that once I'm going to get there, it's going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really looking forward. In that case, what does the Red Village symbolize to you, not just in terms of your family history, but also in this idea of the last Eastern European shtetl, as it's been sometimes described, the only locality outside of Israel or the United States that has a Jewish majority? What do you think is its uh, significance? Why, uh, why do people... You know, all, uh, why do Jews all, all around the world have this sort of connection to it, if they know about it? I think this place is very special. And this place is very special to me personally and to to all the Jews uh, of the Eastern Europe. Um, because this place guaranteed the fact that I know that I'm Jewish. If we compare the story of my family to the story of uh, Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews, Jews in Belarus... Um, Jews in some Baltic states, um, during the USSR, they could not practice their Judaism. And I'm not saying that Azerbaijan was like, okay, guys, now you can do whatever you want. It's going to be a unicorn land for the Jews. It wasn't like that. Uh, but still, Jews in the Red Village, they could practice the Judaism. They knew that they're Jews. They knew that they're not Azeris and they were respected. And they were allowed to do whatever they want. My dad was having um, kosher meat for Pesach, for every Passover. And I remember the stories of Ukrainians and Russians um, in, in a synagogue telling us, oh, you know how hard it was in the 60s or in the 70s to get the kosher meat? We were starving because we wanted to practice. They couldn't get uh, circumcisions for their kids. They couldn't, they just basically could not be Jewish. Um, but you could be Jewish in the Red Village. That's why, yeah, one in interesting point is that uh, whenever we needed to prove, we and by we, I mean uh, my generation, I needed to prove that we're Jewish in a synagogue for, for whatever reason. If you want to get married, you need to prove it. If you want to go to like some special program, you need to uh, prove that you're Jewish. Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews, and Jews from Belarus would always have problems because their documents would not say that they are Jews. Um, it would just say Russian, and their names would not be Mikhail, it will be Mikhail. When it comes to mountain Jews, they would just bring the uh, certificate of birth by their mothers, grandmothers, which will state um, either Jew or another word, uh, Tat, uh, which was basically created for us to to by Azeris to um, protect us and not to say directly that we're Jewish, but also to show that we're not Azeris. That's very interesting because I know that under the USSR, there was this really put big push for Jews to assimilate within to the cultures that they lived among. 
would you say that wasn't really the case for mountain Jews because they weren't necessarily like part of the European hegemonic culture within the Russian society? Yeah, it um, you're correct. Um, we we just lived Jews just lived in the Red Village and they didn't touch anyone and they were not touched. So it's it's crazy to think about it, but yeah, it was like a, an island uh, of untouchable. That's incredibly interesting. And you said you grew up in Moscow. So I was kind of wondering, do you have family that was also from Europe or was it all Persian mountain Jewish heritage? Or what brought you to Moscow or your family and yourself? Um, so in the 90s, when the Soviet Union has fallen, uh, tensions started to grow in Azerbaijan. So my family was among of the families that had to leave um, their home. Um, and when I'm saying my family, I don't just mean my dad and my mom. I also mean my grandparents from both sides, my aunts, my uncles, basically the whole family, they moved. And everybody was looking for the best place for them to move. Uh, part of my family moved to Germany. Uh, part of my family moved to Israel. Uh, some part of my family moved to the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. And my mom and dad were the only one who went to Moscow. And I was already born in Moscow. It really speaks to the sort of diaspora, the choices that you have of where you go, especially when you're kind of forced to flee from a place. The question of where you go and really where you can go is often a very political, contentious question. So it's very interesting that your family really became like personally di dispersed. Like there's a personal family diaspora there that's really interesting so thank you for sharing that i wanted to ask a little bit about how the jewish community in russia looks at non-ashkenazi um parts of the of the jewish world i can imagine that there is a significant uh, um there's a significant majority and dominance of the sort of ashkenazi uh perception by the way i'm making hand gestures as if you can see me <laughs> but uh there's um uh so there's a there's a significant Ashkenazi majority in Russia, and in in the British context, for example, in America as well, there's more and more this um, this discussion of the word Ashkenormativity, in terms of the Jewish experience being viewed primarily and singularly only through the Ashkenazi experience, and in in the British context, Sephardi or Mizrahi uh, communities being. Uh, basically ignored or, or put under the bus uh, in terms of how Jewish perception is, is viewed outside of the community. In Britain, it's particularly interesting because in before, uh, before the second half of the 19th century, the Jewish community in Britain was primarily Sephardi. Uh, and it was only afterwards that there was significant migration from, uh, from, the, from Eastern Europe that, that changed the balance. And then in France, the exact opposite happened, right? So I wanted to sort of see how in, in this comparison do you, um, do you see in Russia the connection between Ashkenazi and non-Ashkenazi communities? Is there a difference of synagogues? Is there a difference of community leaders? I know Chabad has quite strong, uh, uh, is quite well organized in Russia. How do they approach this subject? So um, there is a big difference between us and them between mountain Jews and Ashkenazi, uh, between Buharian Jews and Ashkenazi, and Buharians and mountain Jews are alike. Um, that we are much more similar to each other, but we are still different. Um, growing up in Moscow, I remember that before I turned around 15, 16, there was um, a big difference. I mean, there is still a difference, but kind of Ashkenazi Jews would go to their synagogue and then mountain Jews and Buharians would go to their synagogue. There would be like this separation. Um, but the more Jewish life in Russia developed, the less separation we saw. And Chabad played a very important role in it, I think, because they created um, amazing programs which were open for every Jew. Uh, doesn't it, it didn't matter to them if you're Ashkenazi Jew or if you're a mountain Jew. It was open for everyone. And this is how slowly, slowly um, we became, like mountain Jews became more integrated of, in the world of the Ashkenazi Jews and vice versa. So now I think um, 
And now I think that it's uh, it's a great co-living situation. Uh, these programs by Chabad, they consist, let's say, 60% of the people who go there, 60-65 are Ashkenazi, and then like 40% will be mountain Jews. And it's it's just amazing. Yes, we're very different, very, very, very different. And uh, when you're in a bus of 40 people, you know, okay, those kids are mountain Jews. We know how they're going to act. Uh, but it's still amazing because by the end of the Jews were uh, by the end of the day we're Jewish. That's what matters. Absolutely. What were you, you you said they you you know how they act. Are there any specific like cultural characteristics or practices or even like liturgical differences that you could point out between the Ashkenazi Jews and the Mountain Jews or Bukharian Jews? Well, there are some um, differences in praying. Um, there are some differences in the way we pronounce the name of the God. You know, it's it's very obvious and it's normal. Um, Ashkenazi traditions are different from Mizrahi traditions, obviously. Um, but also just the attitude to, to life. Um, and when I meant we know how they act, I actually, I meant just one thing uh, that uh, mountain Jews really like to dance Liz Ginka every time they get happy. Um, I don't know if you know this dance, but it's just, it's it's very beautiful. It's not easy to dance. Uh, it's very loud. And my God, every time they do this dancing on the trip, everybody is just like in the circle and clapping to them. I love that. I love that so much. I, I think the sort of cultural diversity between different Jewish communities and then the fact that they can all come together as Jews and really share these traditions with each other is really, really beautiful. And to me, one of the things that makes the Jewish tradition so rich and so beautiful, because it's not this one homogenous tradition, it's many different traditions that can come together for religious or cultural or even just like the fact that we're all Jews and like to be with Jewish community. It's something that's really we cherish. And I think it's really amazing to hear that there's dancing and stuff because I've I'm very not familiar with mountain Jewish traditions. So I ask because I'm very curious and I'm very excited to be able to chat with you about this because I'd love to I'd love to see that dance and to be there one day. Because that's a really wonderful thing to hear. I wish I knew how to dance it. It's, uh... I'm sure you could learn. <laughs> One aspect that I wanted as well to ask is, in um, personally, uh, I'm very interested in Yiddish as part of my Ashkenazi heritage, as um, I think it is able to not just connect to the past, but is also able to work towards this uh, diversity of, of Jewish culture. Today, there is a sort of Yiddishist, secular Yiddishist speak that is outside of the ultra-Orthodox community that is able to organize the things more or less, uh, possibly. Um, I spoke, a few, when I was at Summer U, I spoke to Eyal, who was from Turkey, and he was telling me about his um, efforts and and his uh, support for doing work around uh, Ladino. I don't know if you remember, there was a special session that he made about... Uh, question. My question is... Um, uh, so so Al did uh, a lot of work around Ladino. We interviewed him here as well. Um, is there a similar sort of... What is the sta status of, like, I believe the mountain Jewish language is, what, Judeo-Tat? It's, wow, well, Judeo-Tat. It's um first time I hear that. I don't know if it's that's the way you, you call it in English. We call it Juhuri. Uh, Juhuri, yes. yes yeah, that's, yes. that's the language. Um, and it's basically old Farsi, the Farsi that is not spoken now in Iran, but was spoken um, years ago. Um, the Actually, it's a very tragic story what happened to the language. Uh, so there was a community. Uh, people were speaking the language. My parents know the language. Um, they were... So basically, when my parents were growing up, they spoke Juri, they spoke Azeri, and they spoke Russian fluently, all three languages. Then, obviously, they moved to Russia, uh, I was born in Moscow. I never had a chance to speak this language. My parents used this language as the language to talk to each other. And so, and I would not understand it. It's a shame, but that's what most of the parents did. And not a lot of young people now speak the language. There are some that speak. Um, and it's quite common, but it is a dying language, uh, unfortunately. There were some efforts made by the mountain Jewish community to recreate uh, the language. And actually, I know a guy who is like, uh, who was a professor, he's, he's has zero connections to mountain Jews, but uh, for some reason, uh, he even uh, wrote a book about um, 
the language Gyana Bogdanov is his name. Um, and he was uh, teaching the language, but at some point the classes stopped. And, um, I, I'm not sure if this language will make it out to the next. That idea of the parents speaking the language that the ch so that the children don't understand it is something that you see a lot in uh, in uh, Yiddish, formerly Yiddish-speaking uh, Jewish communities in Britain or in America. Um, no, so that uh, I just I quickly also looked it up. A Judeo tat is the same word. It's the same word for Juhuri. It's interesting though that you had. Uh, uh, never heard it in terms of like how to use it English. Yeah. So that, um, that is is something that was written in the USSR for the nationality for Jews in in Azerbaijan and in Dagestan. So not to write Jewish, but like yeah. to write Tat. So it, yeah. yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, for my family, my family moved from Eastern Europe in the eighteen between the eighteen eighties and the nineteen twenties, when many many Jewish families moved from that to the US. Uh, but because my family moved several several generations back, even my grandparents don't speak Yiddish. So I do think it's very sad in a sense, because in a real way, Yiddish is also kind of a dying language. And it's really for me, I didn't connect to Yiddish until frankly this last year when I went to Poland and went to the house that my great grandfather spent the first 15 years of his life in before coming to the US. And I was with Zach and other Jewish Poles, basically, and other Jews from around Europe and America that came because we were there for the uh, 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I was surrounded by more Yiddish speakers than I'd ever been surrounded by in my life. And I was like, wait a minute. I'd always been told that this is like a dead language or very much dying, but here's a bunch of people that are speaking it. And one person in particular spoke Polish and Yiddish and no English. And I was like, wow, if I had Yiddish, I could talk to him, but I don't. And it was kind of like a big sense of loss that I'd never felt at a personal level, but like is historical more than personal most of the time. And then I realized that like, oh, I actually could learn this. And like, it's not that it's like, it is dying and it's really tragic that it's dying. But at the same time, we don't have to like let it die if we don't want to. We can really put in the work. And of course, it is a lot of work to kind of preserve a language. I tried to learn some Yiddish on my own with Duolingo and doesn't work. You can't just learn a language through that. You really need people to talk to and people to practice it with. And I was kind of wondering, is there any sort of attempts to kind of keep the tradition of Jahuri alive uh, in terms of like cultural work or communal community work around that? So that's what I said. The uh, Mountain Jewish uh, Community Center in uh, Moscow um, tried to create these um, lessons of Jewry with Gyana. Um, I, I was at one or two lessons, but then it just stopped because, um, there's not so much, um, people, not so many people who want to learn and eager to learn at this point. Yeah. And it's hard because like, what's the point of learning a language that like is mostly a dying language? It's not like it's yeah. actually going to get you somewhere. Like learning Spanish is really practical or learning European languages is really practical. And then learning Yiddish, it's not very practical because like there's no one that would really be able to talk to you and it's just not practical. And then for me, what really has helped me connect to it is like listening to music with Yiddish and where you don't even have to be able to understand the language to kind of appreciate the beauty of like Yiddish poetry and how it's so expressive of a language. Um, is there any kind of like cultural uh, components of Juhuri? Like, is there any music that uses Juhuri? Uh, uh, like yeah. the dance you mentioned, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of music. Um, I'm not necessarily a big fan of that type of music. I'm uh, not going to lie. Um, but yes, there is. And at weddings, this music is played, of course. Uh, yeah, this is just the type of music that my dad would listen to. <laughs> and I'm not really uh, a big fan. Um, it says... Yeah, it's a Mizrahi music. Like you, you heard Mizrahi music, you you can understand what I mean. Yeah, um, we have been recording for about twenty five minutes then, so I think it makes sense for us. If there's unless there's anything else that uh, Yanni would like to say to sum up this point, speak. But we can move on to um, unless you want to say anything more about this, we can speak a little bit about the World Union of Jewish Students. Um, no, if you guys have any more questions regarding Mountain Jews, I can answer. And um, if not. Sure, let's just 
come to talk uh, about Wujas. Okay. On this program, on this podcast, we have already spent uh, quite a bit of time speaking about the Union of Jewish Students, the British one, uh, the one that does not need a prefix before it, uh, and then leads to a lot of confusion when it comes to acronyms at the European level. So we've spoken about the Union of Jewish Students. We've spoken about the European Union of Jewish Students. We've done uh, two podcasts on it fully uh, after Summer U, or relating to Summer U. Uh, so we've sort of been expanding in, in scope. So we haven't yet reached the world union of Jewish students, uh, so to speak. We There's not, yes, you know, it's, at, at one point, you know, we'll get to the uh, the intergalactic union of Jewish students at this rate. Um, but uh, just a little bit, because what is the world union of Jewish students for you? And um, how did you get involved with it? How is it organized? What does it do? The World Union of Jewish Students is a democratic umbrella organization representing 800,000 Jewish students across the globe. We work with the national student unions who are our member unions and all the unions that you've mentioned before, including EUGS, UGS, and many others are our uh, member unions. Um, we are fully democratic. I'm My position as the president is an elected position board members are also elected. We also have the CEO who is being appointed by the board and the president. Um, we have around 40 national student unions um, who are operating within us. Uh, we have a very old organization. It was founded in 1924 and Albert Einstein was among the founders and among the first presidents. So it's all the way from him to me. No pressure at all. No pressure. Um, <laughs> no pressure. This, this year, it's actually going to be 100 years of Bujas. And mm. uh, we were uh, supposed to have a big Congress in December in Jerusalem. Uh, we still hope it's going to happen. Um, for now, we're on a kind of an oppose because we don't know what's going to be happening in Israel in a few months. But yeah, that's Bujas in a nutshell. How I got involved, I was representing Russia um, in both boards of EGS and Bujas. And yeah, that's that's how we discovered it. So I was kind of wondering, because in the US, as far as I'm aware, there is no affiliate of Bujas. We have Hillel, which is from my what I understand, it is different because it's not democratic, which I'd say is a big problem. And I was wondering if there's any kind of like discussions or plans or action to try to actually challenge the dominance of a non-democratic student union within the U.S. in terms of with 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 Wujas. Yeah, so uh, of course, Wujas is a student-led organization and all of our member unions are student-led unions as well. Uh, Hillel, Chabad, all of these organizations are amazing, but they're just not student-led. That's the big difference. Um, U.S. was struggling a lot within Bujas. Uh, there were a lot of bright representation representatives from the U.S. One of the loudest uh, presidents that Bujas had were coming from the U.S. But Jewish community in the U.S. is so big and so broad that it's very hard to stay representative and it's very hard to stay democratic. That's why the previous attempts to build a union there failed. There were some uh, attempts. I remember when I got involved in Wujas in 2016, I believe there was some kind of a union that didn't work out. And obviously, I don't know the full history of years before. And right now we are working with the Jewish on campus. They are an observant union of Wujas. What is the difference between being an observant union and a member union? Member unions can vote on the General Assembly. They can vote on the policies. They can vote for the president, for the board members, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, observant unions cannot. But still, when we need to talk about the U.S. students, we are talking to Jewish on campus. They are currently working on creating uh, a full uh, student union. Shout out to Micah. Shout out to Julia, to Blake, and to everyone who is working on that. Um, so once they create something and once they prove to Wujas that they... Do you know if that organizing is happening on the East Coast? Just because I tend to, that's kind of, it's very different because this is such a big country. You have 
a lot of very different Jewish communal politics on the East Coast and the West Coast, both in terms of like the religious proportionality of terms of denominations, but also in terms of like the sort of cultural life that emerges because of the differences in communities. So I know that Julia and Michael are both based in New York, um, but whenever Jewish on Campus is posting something, they always post about basically West Coast, East Coast, both coasts. Uh, and they talk about all universities. And I'm sure that while creating a union, they will take it into consideration. Uh, so there will be not like, you know, seven board members from New York and New Jersey. Like that's not going to happen. That should not happen. Yeah, it's very difficult to build something nationally in the U.S. And I've talked to a lot of people yeah. across both coasts and it's very divided. You have a lot of different groups, uh, both politically as well as in terms of the type of work that they're doing. Um, so uh, good luck to them. I hope that they can have luck in building something more democratic as like a mainstream Jewish student union, because I think that's the one of the biggest issues where like Hillel kind of monopolizes campus Jewish politics. And that really prevents Jewish students from being able to build the communities that they want to build. And I think having an American union of Jewish students could be a definitely a beneficial thing within the uh, sort of ecology of Jewish communal politics in the U.S. because it's very much uh, a mess in the current moment and very complicated. Not to mention just that through its sheer size, the American Jewish student population could really help, I think, a lot in that something that I something that hits very close to home for me is this kind of international or transnational cooperation between different Jewish student uh, uh, organizations in communities that are themselves perhaps quite small but if they are able to work together and be able to exchange information that could help and that that sort of American elephant not in the room can certainly um, help out especially you know communities uh, in, in in smaller with, with that that are from countries of smaller Jewish populations I wanted to ask just one more technical question if um, if I can in terms of the in terms of the organizations that are able to vote and are represented within Wujus, the organization um, so you said that both UJS, which is a national union, and EUJS, which is a pan-European union, are both represented. So does that mean that European Jewish students are represented by two different, or they, have, they have twice as many votes? What's the situation? So the way it works, uh, both UJS and EUJS have votes, but also Belgian union has votes, uh, French union has votes, um, Russian union has votes, Ukrainian union has votes. All of these countries are representing Europe, but they still have votes. And then EJS separately has votes as well. Um, these votes are based on the population, on the Jewish population in the country. Um, so let's, UJS and French union and Russia usually have the most number of votes. Then EGS also has a lot of votes because they represent a lot of uh, Jewish students in uh, Europe. And then basically every country is just based on the population. As someone who is a British Jewish student, I have I am represented in the, the voting process both by the British Union, which has votes, and the European Union, which has votes, right? Twice. You most likely, um, as a British student coming to Wujus Congress, you most likely will be voting on behalf of the UJS of UK, the UK Union unless EUGS wants to point you out as the delegate of the European Union of Jewish Students usually they're not doing it they have their board members um, who are voting board members, office members uh, but if you are a British student who is in the board of the European Union of Jewish Students, you can vote on behalf of EUJS. But it's up to EUJS to decide who their delegates are. Mm -hmm. And the same goes to the UK Union. They decide who their delegates are. But one person cannot be the delegate for both. You cannot vote, vote mm -hmm. for both. It's not possible. I'm sure that in the future I will... Um, just like I went into it very deeply on on the podcast describing the delegate system for EUJS, uh, people interested in that I uh, I point to episode thirteen a few few weeks ago. Um, I'm sure that in the future it would definitely be worthwhile looking at uh, Wujus as well, just to you know basically have a, a greater exploration, understanding what are the advantages and disadvantages of all of these uh, 
systems. Jana, it's been a real pleasure being able to speak to you. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to cover, we've covered a lot of different areas. We haven't covered necessarily all of them in any sort of great, great detail, but I think in terms of both um, in terms of the both mountain Jewish identity, Jewish communities in Russia, that's also a very, very interesting subject that would be great to uh, uh, to go more in detail, as well as Wujus. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. So if you'd like to say any final, um, uh, have any final comments uh, as regarding the interview, anything that you think uh, we we should we haven't said yet that that should be heard by our listeners, um, or any shout outs in particular, this is your space that you can that you can use. Um, I just want to say thank you guys for having me and uh, thank you for doing this job. Uh, I think we need to have more Jewish content um, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts everywhere. Uh, so really, thank you very much. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to have you on. And honestly, we really agree. It's the reason we started this is because we really think there needs to be more Jewish media that really actually talks to people on the ground and not just these like people that are communal leaders in the high high society in a sense. We really are really grateful to have you. And of course, you are kind of in high society in the sense that you are the president <laughs> of Ujis. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's a grassroots organization. It's more grounded in uh, actual communal life. And it's really wonderful to hear your perspective and to learn from you. And we, we hope we can uh, stay in touch and learn from you more. It's really been a pleasure. Whenever you need something from me, as a mountain Jew, as a Russian Jew, as the president of Wujas, as an Israeli, I'm here for you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. See
say